0: Oh come on all you workers Who toil night and day By hand and by brain To earn your pay Who for centuries all past For no more than your bread Have bled for your countries And counted your dead We're the first ones to starve We're the first ones to die The first ones in line for that High in the sky, and we're always
1: the last. So, there's this concern, right, that all of the accumulated knowledge and the oral history um, that could be passed on between, you know, from one worker to another was potentially going to be lost. In
2: 1953, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, at that time known as the International Longshore Men and Warehouse Men's Union, established a set of ten guiding principles at its tenth biennial convention in San Francisco. This manifesto of sorts represents a fascinating historical document, a snapshot in time, but also a roadmap, map, a statement of aspiration, calling upon union members to look beyond internal conflicts derived from factionalism, prejudice, even tradition. The timing of this statement, 1953, Late in the second Red Scare it was of no coincidence as we'll learn in today's episode. For ILWU members, Zack Patton and Micah Dubay, the guiding principles remain a source of inspiration and instruction. We're going to share with you their recent conversation on the Docker podcast, which they recorded at the Young Workers' Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. In a wide-ranging discussion of the ILWU's past, they make sense of this historical moment in 1953 and find special inspiration in the third guiding principle in taking their measure of the present challenges faced by workers in the United States. The statement that, workers are indivisible, there can be no discrimination because of race, colour, creed, national origin, religious or political belief, sex, gender preference or sexual orientation. Any division among workers, the document warns, can help no one but the employers. Discrimination of worker against worker is suicide. This roadmap, Patton and Dubai find, remains of great bearing today. You can find a link to all of the ILWU's 10 guiding principles in the show notes. I'm Patrick Dixon and you're listening to Labour History Today. Hope you enjoy the journey. And here's your Labour History in two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is
3: Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1914. That was the day that President Woodrow Wilson signed the Clayton Antitrust Act. The act also became known as Labor's Magna Carta. Prior to the passage of the law, it was common for business owners to describe labor unions as unlawful conspiracies. In 1890, Congress had passed the Sherman Antitrust Act. The original intent of this act was aimed at disrupting the powerful business monopolies of the day. Not surprisingly, instead of going after the enormously powerful corporate monopolies, industrialists used the Sherman Antitrust Act to go after union organizing. The claim Antitrust Act challenged that anti-labor practice. It stated that the labor of human being is not a commodity. It went on to say, quote, nothing contained in the antitrust laws shall be construed to forbid the existence of labor, agriculture, or horticulture organizations. And it announced that labor organizations were not illegal combinations or conspiracies. Its message on the labor question could not be clearer. The law also strengthened the existing rules against business monopolies. It made it unlawful for one person to sit on the board of directors of two competing companies. It also set up rules against mergers and corporate acquisitions that would limit market competition. All of these steps were meant to better protect consumers and workers. The act was named after its author, Democratic Congressman Hendy DeLamar Clayton from Alabama. Most importantly for labor, Clayton's act made it legal for workers to engage in boycotts, strikes, and pickets. It was a blow to the practice of owners filing injunctions to stop labor organizing. It was an important legal victory for the rights of working people. After all these years, the Clayton Antitrust Act still makes news headlines whenever large corporations discuss mergers.
1: Okay, Micah. Yes? Here we are. Welcome welcome (laughs) uh okay so i haven't done one of these introductions in a really long time uh this is the docker podcast uh dan and the other usual suspects aren't here you got zach patton he him from local 23 in tacoma washington
4: and you got micah dubay they them from local five in portland oregon
1: and we're here at the Young Workers Conference on the 10th anniversary of the first one at the Maritime Labor Center in Vancouver, BC. Uh, on the first day, we got to lead uh, a workshop that we called uh, Weapons of the Boss Racism and Anti Trans Discrimination. Um, and so, Micah, yeah. do you want to tell us, or tell the listeners, remind me what it is that we? <laughs> what we talked about like what was our workshop about what did we do
4: yeah I mean we followed the 10 Guiding Principles workshop and uh, where like workers got to dive more deeply into the 10 Guiding Principles and then like identify those in pictures uh, which I think was really it was a good primer for our workshop because I know like our workshop kind of stemmed out of 10 Guiding Principles uh, when we were talking about it months ago Uh, but yeah we presented about and like had a we had a discussion. Really, we didn't just like present. Like we sat up on the stage, but like in a conversational format, and talked about how uh, the history of these ten guiding principles came to be, um, and then like how that ties into not just like the work that we do as union organizers and union members within like our contracts and our unions, but how that like really applies more broadly to social justice issues, and that uh, we have to consider all of these different pieces in order to make truly like a better working class
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, take, and
4: take down the ruling class.
1: <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. So uh, that was a really great segue, like with the folks before us, you know, who gave this big, broad overview and they talked about all of the 10 guiding principles, all 10 of them. You know, the first one about how a union is built on its members and rank file mm-hmm. democracy. Uh, number 10 about how uh, jurisdictional rating and jurisdictional warfare like undermines like the strength and solidarity of the movement as a whole. There's yeah. stuff about res- like respecting every picket line, about maintaining labor unity, about um, labor internationalism, workers are workers the world over. Uh, so they cover you know broadly all of the like you know the ten cardinal values of our union's founding generation. And so part of what we talked about, and want to reiterate, you know, here for folks who weren't able to attend or who wanted like a little recap is kind of talking about, uh, not all of the specifics of all of the 10 principles, but just where those 10 guiding principles come from. And so, um, the 10 guiding principles were first, <clears throat> um, were first delivered at the union's 1953, um, 10th biennial convention in San Francisco. Uh, that one was like a really big deal. 1953 is both the 20th anniversary of the organizing drive that rebuilt Pacific Coast longshore unionism. Um, it's on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 34 strike itself. Uh, I forgot to mention this the other day, but it's actually also the centennial of the first effort to organize Longshoremen in San Francisco all the way back in 1853. Wow yeah <laughs> um, so lots of lots of historical uh, things to. Commemorate and celebrate. It was also kind of a difficult time for a union. Um, Just a few years prior, I believe coming out of the 1948 strike, was when the first longshore pension plan came into effect. And so there was this mass exodus of longtime members who had been through the 34 strike, who had um, gone through building the Maritime Federation of the Pacific and the Committee for Maritime Unity, who had worked there through. World War II, um, who had been there for the founding of the ILWU proper in 1937. So all of these highly experienced members who had been on the waterfront, and you know, oftentimes long before 34, as well.
4: Yeah, they weren't necessarily new in 34.
1: <laughs> no, that's right. That's a good point to like remind ourselves too. Is that you know our whole history like doesn't just start in 1934, and there's a lot of prehistory that really, uh, really matters, which we're we'll going to talk about in a minute too. Um, but nevertheless, like the the generation of people who founded and built and defined this union um, were leaving it to retire. And so there is this concern, right, that all of the accumulated knowledge and the oral history um, that could be passed on between you know from one worker to another was potentially going to be lost. And so some of the conversations that led to this idea about writing down and declaring and you know, enshrining these 10 guiding principles, um, they're not just abstract good values about equality and democracy and internationalism. They're those things too, but they're also a reflection of the concrete experiences that this founding generation went through. And they say that in the, uh, uh, in the report of the officers to the convention, they talk about how they're the distillation and the summary of these experiences, but that they're also the uh, guideposts that they're advising to future generations of the union and suggesting that every time we as the ILWU or as the labor movement as a whole have strayed outside of these guidelines, um, have strayed away from principles of democracy and internationalism and so on, labor unity, that that's where we've struggled and that's where we've fallen short. And so long as we've held true to these principles, that's the road to success. Um, And so in addition to kind of trying to summarize The union's first 20 years, there's also this other thing that is going on that's maybe not as clear, kind of just in the text of the principles themselves, but of just like the larger historical context, right, of what's going on in 1953. And so this is also just a few years after the ILWU and 10 other unions that were affiliated with the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the US, which was. Um, for a time like a separate and rival federation to the older AFL, or American Federation of Labor. In between 1949 and 1950, the CIO uh, threw out and expelled 11 of its member affiliates. Their estimates are that there was about 900,000 individual workers across those 11 unions. The largest one was the United Electrical Workers, or UE, that had about 300,000 members at the time of its expulsion. Uh, and the charges were that these eleven unions were allegedly communist-dominated. That the party, uh, <laughs> like it's goofy, right? That the party like dominated um, the national offices of these unions. That they determined their union's policy. That they were these, you know, top-down controlled. You know, uh, I don't know, just like goofy, <laughs> like like that Moscow and the yeah. CPUSA, right? Was like running Red these
4: propaganda. Yeah,
1: you know. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and so, part of that is like in the context of the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. This is like really where this stuff kind of escalates. But there's always like tensions between, you know, the left, right, and center within the CIO yeah. that goes back like much earlier too. Um, but things like really, really start to heat up um, after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, right? Which in 1947 is um, a congressional like reaction to the 1946 strike wave. Like so, as workers are coming out of um, wage freezes and other things from World War II. They're saying, like, all right, you know, the war is over. We can let's talk about raises again. And, and bosses nationwide all say no. Uh, and, hard no time
4: and run to the government and just, like, help us. Yeah,
1: right. You know, and so, so there's this big, massive strike wave, especially in, like, rail and coal and, like, a bunch of other industries. The National Guard is brought in to, like, break strikes. And there's this, you know, there's this backlash against organized labor. The Republicans... Regain control of Congress. And one of like the major things they do is force through the Taft-Hartley Act, which uh, in U.S. labor law was an amendment to the earlier Wagner Act or National Labor Relations Act, which is the, the bill that came out of the New Deal era that really defined um, the framework for American yeah. labor law uh, still with us today. And so Taft-Hartley... Came in with a bunch of things, like it uh, outlawed wildcat strikes, it outlawed sympathy strikes, it outlaws secondary boycotts. Uh, The classic line, right, is that it took away, like, everything that, like, worked. So it didn't, like, actually make strikes themselves illegal, but all the kinds of striker direct action activity that gets the goods got taken away.
4: They didn't want the worker solidarity, like, between organizations.
1: (laughs) That's a great way to put it, yeah. Like, what the Taft-Harley Act fundamentally does is uh, outlaw... Solidarity in like a lot. It makes us each stand on our own, (laughs) right? And so, one of those things too was isolating um, and persecuting people with left-wing ideals and politics. Um, One of the the major things of the Taft-Hartley Act was that it included what was called a loyalty oath or an anti-communist affidavit, where union officials had to sign paperwork and swear that they weren't uh, members of the Communist Party or sympathetic to its aims or else their union wouldn't be recognized before the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. They couldn't file for elections. They would be open to rating from unions that were certified before the NLRB, and they couldn't legally appear on the ballot to, like, defend their jurisdictions. And so this is a thing that had been— an issue for our union for a long time, all the way back, Mm -hmm. even like in the start of the 1934 strike, Harry Bridges in particular, our union's founder, uh, was ruthlessly and persecuted. There was five, you know, between 1934 and 1955, there was five separate um, uh, legal cases. And I think like four of those five were uh, efforts at like outright deporting him and sending him back to Australia where he was born. Two of those cases went to the Supreme Court. One of them, one of the cases was over perjury that uh, brought in Henry Schmidt and Louis Goldblatt as well. And so this question of um, whether Harry was or wasn't a member of the Communist Party or whether our union was like sympathetic to it, was this thing that our enemies, uh, the government, the ship owners, mm-hmm. uh, rival and more conservative unions, like all sorts of opponents would bring up over and over and over to try to like undermine us and hurt us. And so this thing really breaks out into the open, with the Taft-Hartley Act in '47, initially to their credit, like the mainstream of the CIO opposes it and resists it on like the basic grounds that this is unconstitutional. If this is America, you should have like the freedom, yeah. like it's the um,
4: First Amendment. It's the First here. Amendment, right? <laughs> you know, like
1: uh, freedom of like political association, right? Um, but because of some internal conflicts within the CIO, which we don't have to go into here, but uh, there are some real dividing lines within the labor movement. This question about uh, communism or alleged membership or um, being dictated by the party like, really comes to a head, especially at the 1949 convention, when the United Electrical Workers and the farm equipment workers um, are thrown out of the CIO. And then over the next year, Um, up until August 28th, 1950, that's like the last of the 11 expulsions, and that's when our union, the ILWU, the National Union of Marine Cooks and Stewards, and the Fishermen's Union, the three of the maritime unions, are finally thrown out in the summer of that year, and that's that. And so coming back to our 1953 convention, we're now an independent union. We're on the ropes a lot of these other unions that had been thrown out alongside of us, including the mine mill and smelter workers, the fur and leather workers, the United Public Workers, um, are constantly under attack. And so kind of skipping ahead in time up until 1955. So by 1955, eight of those 11 unions have ceased to exist. They've either merged into other unions for survival. So the fishermen and the marine cooks and stewards both joined and became like a part of the ILWU albeit only for a short time. Yeah. In the case of the Marine cooks and Stewards, we can talk about that later. Um, others kind of just collapse and fall apart um, entirely. Uh, and others are raided and taken over yeah. by um, rival unions. By 1967, Mine Mill, or the International Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers, finally concedes and becomes a part of the Steelworkers Union. <laughs> and so all the way up to this day, the only two of those unions that survived this um, purge is the United Electrical Workers, UE also shout out to you all if any one of you are listening uh, congratulations on all of your successful organizing of grad students and yeah, your yeah, successful yeah. convention <laughs> just a couple of weeks ago um, and the ILWU and so we're the only two unions that made it out alive um, albeit was a really like brutal fight yeah. especially in these early years too Some
4: scrapes and bruises that's right you <laughs> know
1: especially for UE like UE like I said was the largest of the ones that was expelled they had Three hundred thousand members at the time that they were thrown out, um, and within a couple of decades, that was whittled down. I think to only about like thirty thousand, and much of their core um, industrial base and like electrical manufacturing was uh, first raided by rival unions, and then the pattern of um, of capital flight, um, runaway capital uh, offshoring of production. All the other, you know, the devastating impacts that have hurt like unions and manufacturing especially really, you know, gave them a blow. And our warehouse division took like a really heavy beating, you know, from fighting and rivalries with other unions as well as, you know, the marine cooks and stewards we weren't able to successfully hold on to. And that was ripped away from rival maritime unions. And But we are unique in the fact that we are the only one that was actually able to hold on to our core jurisdiction in Longshore and growing, you know, and especially with the organizing drives in Hawaii um, and, yeah, maintaining our density in, like, Longshore, um, you know, to the – we did okay. (laughs) Um, And anyway, and so what I'm saying about all this that I think is important to consider as well, 1953, in a lot of ways, is this very celebratory moment, you know, like we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 1934 – West Coast Waterfront strike. It's the 20th anniversary of the organizing drive that gave like birth to the LW ultimately when we officially became the LW on August 11th, 1937. But it's also very much kind of like a dark time. And I, I have to imagine that our founders were unsure if we were going to make it another two years yeah. until our next convention in 1955. because like I said, like eight of those unions, did uh, didn't. Gone. They were gone, <laughs> you know. And so, I don't know. I've always had like a very particular reading of like the 10 guiding principles that in a way they're kind of a time capsule.
4: They are. In
1: this, with this thought in the back of people's heads that it's like maybe our union won't be around in another two years, but if, and if we're not. I at least want to leave something behind to say, like, this is who we were and this is what we yeah. stood for and it's something worth these being
4: are principles proud worth of,
1: dying for. <laughs> you know? Maybe. But what I do know for certain, and you can see this in the way that they're framing, is that I think that there was, like, a very bold confidence that, like, if we stick to these principles, we can ride out whatever gets thrown at us, including yeah. this deep, dark, very dangerous moment in the early 1950s, you know, that we were facing down as... A union. Um, and spoiler alert, uh, we made it, right? Like, we live. We're, we are we are actually still here. Back in Local 23, through our education series that we call Passing the Torch, um, we have spent, like, a number of years doing events where we um, talk about our 10 guiding principles in their historical context. And so one of the ones, you know, the one that we focused on, and this is where we got the name for our workshop about weapons of the boss, um, was our third guiding principle, that says workers are indivisible, there can be no discrimination because of race, color, creed, national origin, religious or political belief, uh, sex, sexual identity, or gender preference. And it Mm -hmm. goes on to talk about how discrimination of uh, worker against worker is suicide and that it's a weapon of the boss and doesn't serve to help anybody but the employers. Um, The latter half of that is paraphrasing. It says something (laughs) like that, right? But so the origins of that, you know, there's not like one, um, there's not just like one part of our history alone that feeds into that. But uh, what we talked about the other day, um, and I think it's probably like the clearest, uh, maybe kind of origin point for what becomes a larger commitment to multiracial democracy, uh, to broad inclusion, to anti-racist organizing, really comes out of the experience of Longshoremen particularly in San Francisco. and so like yeah. you had said that it's like our history doesn't just like start in 1934 there's all these years before that are very much a part of our history yeah. too even though our union didn't exist yet um, prior to 1934 um, longshore unionism on the west coast, with some exceptions, albeit in a limited form, was largely exclusionary. It was a racist form of like whites-only yeah. unionism, um, and that's not something that was unique to longshoring on the West Coast. This like was the dominant trend. Uh, really throughout like almost the entirety of the labor movement, with some notable exceptions, like the Black-led Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United Mine Workers had uh, a much greater commitment to including black workers, including having black district leadership and organizers on staff in a way that was very unique among other unions at the time. Um, but the overall general trend, um, and especially of affiliates of the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, was whites only native born only, oftentimes men only, some unions explicitly uh, didn't include just black workers but Asian workers and Jews. like it was a very like racist and short-sighted form of unionism that also um, subscribed to uh, craft unionism, and so when we were talking about what it would take to reorganize the union um in, 19, in the early 1930s, especially ramping up in 33 and into 34, there was um, a couple people, especially in San Francisco, who reflected back on earlier moments and shortcomings and failures of longshore unionism on the coast. And so there's a reason people got to reorganize the union, and it was because it had collapsed. And part of that is that it comes in the wake of um, the 1916 longshore strike, which was really significant and historic. Uh, For being the first time that longshoremen up and down the entire West Coast actually all went on strike together rather than dock by dock or port by port. Um, But one of the big shortcomings of it was that they didn't have an agreement to all wait to return to work at the same time. And so one port would get a contract and then, you know, on that contract and return to work. And that left the rest of the coast high and dry. And so they didn't maintain Mm -hmm. coastwide unity. And their other big shortcoming was that this was still, by and large, a whites only Union. And so they really set themselves up for failure and really like inviting the employers to take advantage of this by bringing in especially black strikebreakers as scabs to cross their picket lines and do longshore work behind those picket lines. Because why, like, you know, like, why would you stand in solidarity with a union that is never going to allow you to join because of the color of your skin or any other kind of discriminatory Mm -hmm. category people might place you in to? Deny your full personhood and not respect you as a fellow worker and be in solidarity with you. Right. And so, and so this is the thing that we talked about the other day, too, is that um, oftentimes the way that this gets talked about, and again, this isn't just the history of longshore unionism on the West Coast, but this like same mistake of like racist, exclusionary, anti black unionism uh, happens in like every industry imaginable throughout like Mm -hmm. the entire United States. Um, And time and time again, uh, these racist unions set themselves up for failure. Yeah. Uh, and But so the way that it gets talked about a lot of the time is to say that, oh, the employers used black strike breakers against the strike or against the union effort.
4: As if it was black people's fault. <laughs> right.
1: And so uh, I think that that's like a terrible framing. And I think the best way to look at it and what I've been trying to like really emphasize more and more, especially in recent years, is that what employers are actually using the actual tool uh, to defeat unionism is that they're using white workers' own racism yeah. against them, and that's the weak point. It's a fissure, right? Um, that's the, like the the break in the link in the chain. That's where unions like set themselves up um, to lose, and that's what employers are taking advantage of and actually using to defeat unionism. Successful. It's painting
4: a really big bullseye of just like here's our weak point,
1: right? You know, <laughs> letting the whole world know it, right? And so and so that's exactly what they did, and so not having coast-wide unity, uh, not including workers of color, not building the broadest coalitions possible. They set themselves up for failure, and so the picket lines didn't hold, the Mm -hmm. coast didn't hold. And 1916, in a lot of ways, was a setback. They tried to go on strike again in 1919, didn't learn from any of their mistakes, uh, and got largely defeated again, skipping ahead uh, a couple years. Uh, Some of our founders in San Francisco, like Harry Bridges and Henry Schmidt, Mm -hmm. uh, who later becomes the first president of Local 10, Um, they knew their history and they knew what was going on. And they knew that if we didn't have unity up and down the coast and if we were going to continue to be like a racist whites only union, that we were never going to be able to win the next time we go on strike, the next time we really try to organize. And so in anticipation of this, they started going well, first, they had to convince like the other white longshoremen in San Francisco, um, the few dozen black workers that were on the waterfront that had mostly been excluded from these efforts in years past, and then going out to the black community all throughout San Francisco and Oakland and like the Bay Area, and really promising like a new deal for black workers and saying, hey, like we know that we as longshoremen have made mistakes in the past, but if you all help us win this strike, if you help support our picket lines, and we can defeat the employers and win a union... Our promises that we're going to open up like the membership books and we're going to let black workers yeah. in, and it's going to be it's like a it's going to be a new deal for all of us, but especially for African Americans, right? Um, and so that's exactly what happens. Uh, those appeals didn't just directly come from Bridges and Schmidt, but there was also C. L. Dellums of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, who was like a really prominent uh, black labor and political leader in the Bay Area. He was going on saying the same thing too that unionism is the solution to the problems that. Black people are facing in America, and especially at the absolute depths of the Great Depression. Um, and so that magically happens and that holds. And so, one of the really incredible things that comes as a result of the 34 strike um, and winning the worker controlled hiring hall is the new local, and this is still in the ILA, it's a couple years out from when we break yeah. off and become the LWU, right? But so the new longshore unionism through its control over the worker controlled hiring hall. Um, uses that power to start desegregating gangs on the waterfront. They don't allow for whites only or black only or ethnic uh, group by ethnic group gangs any longer. Um, They don't just open up their membership roles, but actively start recruiting black workers so much that from going from like one percent of the workforce in the 1930s by the 1960s, uh, local 10 is like more than 50 percent black. And so that leads to like the successful desegregation of even like other industries, and so this union is really quickly uh, figuring out that it has like this power to like really radiate even beyond our own immediate yeah. interests uh, and fight for the whole like working class and fight for like racial justice uh, even that's beyond like the waterfront. Right? Oh, right? That's a yeah.
4: couple.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. And so that's like, <laughs> another thing to remind too. you, right? Like all the all the ten principles really mm-hmm. like interact and intersect with one another. They don't really exist in. Isolation, right? And so, you know, this is one of the things that we really wanted to kind of drive home the other day is that having a commitment to inclusion and anti-racism isn't just about like abstract, lofty moral goals, but like it comes down to like basic bread and butter stuff. Like you can't have a safe workplace and you're not going to get good pay and you're not going to have like a union unless you build that kind of unity. But There's something to be said at the same time, too, about the limits of just kind of what um, some folks have called like stomach equality of just sort of like including people as a matter of pragmatic necessity versus this more this larger and more robust, like deep, actual principled commitment to anti-racism. I think in a lot of ways builds a more durable and powerful kind of unionism that, you know, coming back to what we were talking about by the 1950s and the bad moment that we're in. Um, helps you survive these really dark and perilous times. Do you want to talk about how you see the moment that we're in now and like what's going on and yeah. what kind of threats that poses for unionism <laughs> and <laughs> every, and, and everything else, people. all the good things that we yeah. care about. Yeah.
4: Uh, yeah, it's, we're kind of like in a, a little parallel, uh, cause it's not, it's not the same struggle and, uh, it just it just can't be because it's different issues. I mean, not to say that like racism is fixed because it's obviously not.
1: <laughs> sure, but absolutely,
4: we have had like the last I want to say like twenty years or so, uh, maybe even like thirty. I feel like you go into the '90s and like look at like queer television shows. I maybe even a little bit earlier with like Golden Girls, like having these discussions at a time when uh, the AIDS crisis is like happening but uh we we've enjoyed enjoyed we've enjoyed I'm going to say it, it's an imperfect word uh enjoyed um this like kind of like queer revolution of uh acceptance inclusion laws being passed that like extend rights to queer people uh like marriage <laughs> mm-hmm. but like we we got there it it was a slower march than it should have been But we got all these rights, we are seeing protections um, in healthcare, we're seeing uh, like my home state, Oregon, um, passing laws that say that uh, gender affirming care, specifically surgery, like top or bottom surgery or even like other surgeries to like feminize or masculinize or take away those traits but like not go too far to the other. that those are not elective. Those are necessary surgeries. Uh, And what that does is it makes it so that you can only pay your deductible and, like, uh, your max amount of pocket, because, like, when a surgery is deemed voluntary, then, like, your health care doesn't cover it, and you pay out of pocket the full expense. (laughs) Um, So we're seeing a lot of, like, those laws being passed around the country. We're seeing, like... (laughs) grown on starting to become a thing and not just like within like the communities, but like reaching out of communities. Like I've seen organizations that have like no queer people and like they're doing queer practices, which is great. Um And now we're seeing this like backlash too against that because I mean, it's worker solidarity. And like at the end of the day, what they want to do is they want to like destroy they, the ruling class wants to destroy worker solidarity. And this is uh I'm going to say easy just because it's like easy as in it's an easy target to identify of just like, oh, like look at trans people like the bathroom bills Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we're seeing now being passed uh, in some states uh, of uh, they're trying to frame it in a we need to protect women. But it's not about protecting women. It's about killing trans people because. Like no woman that I've ever talked to has ever been concerned about a trans woman being in a bathroom. What they are concerned about though and what does make trans women and women <laughs> and non-binary AFAD people that go into these bathrooms unsafe because then you have these vigilantes for trying to uphold the law mm-hmm. standing outside mm-hmm. of these fucking bathrooms and like beating up people that they don't think look feminine enough. And half the time they get it wrong. (laughs) And they have like accosted cis women. And it's like these bills aren't actually making women safer. Um, And uh, we're seeing like other, it's not even just touching uh, specifically trans issues. Like we're seeing it extend to other things because a lot of this comes out of like education books like we're seeing like anti-library things we're seeing like defunding of oh, library programs we're seeing defunding happening in schools that have queer books <laughs> we're seeing uh, these like oh we need to protect the kids now like we can't <clears throat> we we can't like put like sex on kids too early but then they only do that for queer people um, and like queer ideas of relationships, but those same conversations that happen around heteronormative relationships are allowed to happen because they're normal. And so, uh, it's if if the actual concern is protecting kids from being uh, exposed to the concept of sex at a young age, then it should be everything, right? But it's not. It's very specifically targeting a subset of people hmm. um i just had another thought and then it evaporated
1: <laughs> all right well thank you Micah. thank you everybody for listening uh shout out to all of you young worker delegates uh congratulations to all the delegates uh past and present yeah. both of keeping this thing going for 10 years and
4: i'm so impressed with everyone at this convention for conference really cool. like they're the energy is phenomenal.
1: <laughs> Our union's future is in good hands. We got I think so. we got some good people.
4: The kids are doing all right. The kids are all right.
1: <laughs> all right, we're out of here.
3: I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History In Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1914. That was the day that President Woodrow Wilson signed the Clayton Antitrust Act. The act also became known as Labor's Magna Carta. Prior to the passage of the law, it was common for business owners to describe labor unions as unlawful conspiracies. In 1890, Congress had passed the Sherman Antitrust Act. The original intent of this act was aimed at disrupting the powerful business monopolies of the day. Not surprisingly, instead of going after the enormously powerful corporate monopolies, industrialists used the Sherman Antitrust Act to go after union organizing. The Clayton Antitrust Act challenged that anti-labor practice. It stated that the labor of human being is not a commodity. It went on to say, quote, Nothing contained in the antitrust laws shall be construed to forbid the existence of labor, agriculture, or horticulture organizations. And it announced that labor organizations were not illegal combinations or conspiracies. Its message on the labor question could not be clearer. The law also strengthened the existing rules against business monopolies. It made it unlawful for one person to sit on the board of directors of two competing companies. It also set up rules against mergers and corporate acquisitions that would limit market competition. All of these steps were meant to better protect consumers and workers. The act was named after its author, Democratic Congressman Hendy DeLamar Clayton from Alabama. Most importantly for labor, Clayton's act made it legal for workers to engage in boycotts, strikes, and pickets. It was a blow to the practice of owners filing injunctions to stop labor organizing. It was an important legal victory for the rights of working people. After all these years, the Clayton Antitrust Act still makes news headlines whenever large corporations discuss mergers.
0: We're the first ones to starve we're the first ones to die the first ones in line for that high in the sky and we're always the last when the cream is shed out for the worker is working when the fat cat's about
2: that's all we've got for this week's labour history today you can subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app Though if, like me, that happens to be Google Podcasts, you might have to think again, because as you might know, it's being discontinued. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's show, please hit like, share, retweet, all that stuff, you know what to do. Labour History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labour History Society and the Rick Smith Show, certainly a show that's worth a listen if you haven't already. This week's show was produced and edited by Chris Garlock and myself, Patrick Dixon. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you're able to join us again next week.
0: And when the sky darkens and the prospect is war Who's given a gun and then pushed to the fore And expected to die for the land of our birth Though we've never owned one lousy handful of earth we're the first ones to starve we're the first ones to die the first ones in line for that high in the sky and we're always the last when the cream is shed out for the worker is working when the fat cats about